Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lance. It is our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Now here's today's message with Pastor Michael. Let's take our Bibles. We're continuing to go through the book of Acts and we are looking at a message called When I Find Time. When I find time. I'd like you to hold a finger in Acts 23 and also in Exodus chapter 8. When I find time. The evangelism team went out yesterday, as Pastor John mentioned, 21 people got the training, but not only the training, they went out to Santana Park and they began to share the gospel. And some of the people, Exodus 8 and Acts 23 is what you want, some of the people who uh, heard the gospel recognized their need immediately And some of them said, yes, I would like to know Jesus Christ. But then when the question was asked, would you like to pray right now to receive Jesus? Sometimes people hesitate. Sometimes they hesitate because their friends are around. We have a table at the Tyler Mall. We're doing evangelism every Friday night at the Tyler Mall. It's awesome. God's bringing tons of people. People are getting saved. But when they go through the gospel presentation, oftentimes, and we just heard these stories yesterday at the training, You'll get maybe a young person and they're right at the verge of coming to know Christ. Do you want to pray right now? And then they hesitate. It's like, uh, not right now, when I find time, or I don't want to do it in front of these people. And I guess we understand that from a human standpoint. So the evangelism team will say, okay, then take this gospel track and before your head hits the pillow tonight, make sure you're right with God because you don't know what a date's going to bring and that's how they share. But many, many people have this. They say, when I find time. We're going through Ecclesiastes on Wednesday nights and in chapter three, the famous song done by the, the birds to everything, you know, turn, turn. You guys have heard the song. And Solomon says, there's a time for every event under heaven, every opportunity. God is providential over time, but we need to get with this program. In Ephesians 2.10, it says that he's prepared good works that we should walk in them, and he's prepared them beforehand. But it is our job to respond to God. Now, in Exodus chapter 8, Moses has been bringing the plagues on uh, Pharaoh and Egypt. And this is chapter 8, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, Exodus 8, 1, and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. Exodus 8, verse 3. The Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house, into your bedroom, and on your bed, and into the houses of your servants, and on your people, and into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. That's pretty, uh, (laughs) frogs are everywhere, let's just put it that way. Then the, the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, verse 6, And the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians, interestingly enough, did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So there are frogs everywhere. Frogs in your bed, frogs on your head. They could even be singing a song, right? Rivet, 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 rivet. They're everywhere. Then the Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he would remove the frogs 
from me and from my people, and I will let the people go, and they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, okay, the honor is yours. You tell me, when shall I entreat uh, for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses that they may be left only in the Nile? When do you want the frogs to go, Pharaoh? You get to choose the time this time. And Pharaoh, in one of the most incredible lines in the Bible, says, tomorrow, just one more night with the frogs. Rivet, I'm kind of getting used to them. The frogs are my friend. He sleeps with me at night. What? One more, tomorrow? I mean, if you were Pharaoh, wouldn't you say, now? There's one on my head, now. There's one in the dough that we're going to make the bread, now. What does he say? Tomorrow. But it shouldn't be that shocking to us because that's kind of how we are about sin And that's how we can be about some of our most important decisions. Tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow. That's what today is about. Now let's turn to Acts 23. We're going to set the table and we'll move into the central part of the text. But Acts 23, last time we were together, we left off with Paul going through a quick hearing with the Sanhedrin and uh, They instructed somebody standing there to strike him on the mouth, and there was a back and forth, Acts 23, look at verse 12. And this is what happened in the night following that tough time for Paul. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we now study the Bible, we know that you're the ultimate teacher. Give us ears to hear what the Holy Spirit would say to us as a group of people, as a church, but as those who may have come in today and may not even know you yet, We know you want to speak. You have spoken already. It's recorded here. It's breathed out by God and it's profitable. So help us to understand it and apply it to our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here's what happened. Uh, This is Acts 23, verse 11. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at Paul's side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Now, a couple thoughts. Number one, Paul's just been through a tough time, and the Lord stood at his side. This is not a vision. This is not a dream. The Lord stood by him and said, you keep going. You keep being my witness. Don't you give up. You are going to finish your race. Now, we know earlier in Acts 9, through Ananias, The Lord said, I will show Paul, he's at that time Saul, how much he must suffer for me. But the Lord made another another promise. I want to point it out to you in Acts 26. Skip ahead for a second. Look at verse 16. Acts 26, 16. The Lord says to Paul, as Paul's giving his testimony before, I think it's Agrippa here. But arise, 26, 16, and stand on your feet. Paul's describing Jesus' initial call to him. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only the things which you have seen, but also the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you, 17, from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And then the mission is given to him to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light. Here's the point. There was a promise not only of suffering, but of protection. 
I will deliver you. There's going to be many plots against you. And the Lord had to remind Paul by standing at his side, I am with you always, and we can claim this for ourselves, even to the end of the age. In Hebrews, we are told the Lord will never leave us, and he will never forsake us. That's our promise from God. And so Paul, facing this difficult time, the Lord stands at his side, and he's going to need this promise because here's what happens next. Acts 23, verse 12 says, And when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy, and this may have been the Jews from Asia Minor, and bound themselves under an oath. They literally anathematized themselves, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. And we're going to find out in the next verse that there's over 40 of them and they have conspired together with an oath. They did something like this. God, if we don't kill Paul, we're not going to eat or drink anything until he's dead. And if we don't kill him, may you do to us what we planned on doing to him. We put ourselves under the divine curse if we don't kill this guy. And we're not eating and we're not drinking till he's dead. 40 and all, ready, break. We're going to kill Paul. And so they come up with this plan. And their plan is to get the the group to convince that there's more evidence needed. This is uh, verse 14. They came to the chief priests and the elders. They said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Here's their plan. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander. Paul was in the barracks in the fortress to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near this place. Here's the plan. Say that you want to reconvene to get more detailed evidence and we'll lie in wait. And when you're bringing him down, we're going to kill him. Okay? And the religious leaders of the day, the moral fiber of the nation, so-called, said, okay, great. That sounds like a great plan. And so the plan is in place. These people are fasting until they get this done. But 16 says the son of Paul's sister, this would be his uh, nephew. We don't know much about Paul's family, but we, we get some insight that they heard about the plot. We know that Paul was a son of Pharisees, so they had some connection to the council. They heard about this plan. Somehow it got out. You say, well, how did it get out? Well, Think about it. Forty people just made a plan and then they shared it with the the council. You know how it goes, right? You tell one person something, it comes out. So anyway, he heard about the ambush. He came and entered the barracks and he told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, lead this young man to the commander if he has something to report to him. And here's the evidence. It comes out and God divinely protects Paul. Have you ever been in a situation where you're under the gun, literally? You may be facing something difficult. Maybe it's a difficult situation in your life. Maybe you're involved in a trial. Maybe there's accusations against you and you're wondering, how am I going to get out of this one? Maybe everything seems stacked against you. God has his ways. And God let the information leak to this young man. He got the information to Paul. And so here's what happened. The commander called to him two of the centurions, verse 23, skip down. We'll summarize some of the story here for the sake of time. And he said, get 200 soldiers, so he hears about their plot, ready by the third hour of the night. Paul's used to escaping places in the cover of darkness. 
to proceed to Caesarea, that's about 65 miles from Jerusalem, with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. So look at the verse. He's got 200 soldiers. He's got 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. You don't have to be a mathematician to know that Paul will now be escorted from Jerusalem to Caesarea on the coast with 470 Roman soldiers. And he's going to be given a horse. He's going to ride in the middle of them and they got him, surround him. And they're all trained fighting men. And if you're one of the 40 plus people who made an oath not to eat until Paul's dead, you're going to hold your tummy because you ain't eating. Because you're not going to penetrate. That's probably half the Roman garrison that was uh, d- there at the fortress of Antonio in Jerusalem to make sure everything went well. And now they leave at night and Paul is surrounded by Roman forces. It's almost as if he was a king getting protection because he's a son of the king. And until God is finished with you, he can protect you. He's written down the number of your days before one of them came to pass. And your life is in his hands. And so to summarize the text, uh, they provide this safety and they're going to bring Paul to the governor Felix. We might call Felix, Felix the rat. Felix was the only slave who ascended to leadership, to my knowledge, in the Roman Empire. He became the governor. And the reason he did is because his brother Paulus had a relationship with Claudius who then became the emperor. And so uh, his brother was kind of, you know, vouching for him and he ascended to the, the uh, position of governor. And uh, there's many historians that say that he, even though he was in this position, he ruled like a slave. He was brutal. He crucified hundreds and hundreds of people to try to put down uprisings and the, and the like. He was uh, a greedy, political, conniving politician. And he thought because of his relationships among his brother and the emperor, he could break any law and nothing would happen to him. That's the man that the Apostle Paul is going to go appear before. Lysias, the commander, writes a letter. He says, look, I found nothing wrong with Paul, nothing worthy of imprisonment, and certainly not worthy of death. And I've sent him to you to hear his case. You can decide his case. And so here comes the the crew, and they deliver Paul. And if you skip down to verse 34, when he read it, that is the letter from the commander, he asked from what province he was, from where Paul was, When he learned he was from Cilicia, even though it was a different province, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also. Giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. This was Herod's palace. Paul apparently did not go into the prison. He had some freedom within the palace. He was chained to a Roman guard, which changed probably every six hours, but he had some freedom. Can you imagine now, Paul, you get this royal entourage leading you. You're there on the coasts, the Mediterranean coast, and you're in the palace of the governor. Not bad, huh? I'll kick back for a while. My life's in good hands. And so now, here comes the leaders of the, the, the Jewish leaders who come to accuse him. Skip down to Acts 24, verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with a certain attorney named Tertullus. We know he was a very famous attorney, very high-powered and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. So now the entourage comes. It's five days. Paul's been waiting. The accusers have come. And now they're going to accuse Paul. They've got this high-powered attorney. And after Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, since uh, we have through you attained much peace, 
And since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, and Felix, by the way, didn't bring a whole lot of peace, why did Paul need 470 soldiers to protect him on the trip if there was so much peace in the land? But there was a lot of problems, but there was some forced peace and some people that he had put down. And he says, the lawyer says, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. Wow. You know, it's been said that flattery, flattery is like chewing bubble gum. Chew on it a while, but don't swallow it. Because usually when people are buttering you up, it's because they're trying to get something. And so he flatters him. And uh, Proverbs 26, 28 says, a flattering mouth works ruin. So here's Felix, and he's listening to this. And Felix, by the way, his name means happy. So there he is. He's listening to the case. And Josephus tells us that Felix repeatedly crucified leaders of various uprisings. He called him a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. One writer says, Felix was an unscrupulous, greedy, brutal, scheming politician. And so the attorney's buttering him up and and now he's going to break into the charges against Paul. He says, but that I may not weary you any further, verse 4, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. I want to give you three points in essence about this guy. We have found, verse 5, this man a real pest Vance Havner said of Paul, wherever Paul went, there was either a riot or a revival, close quote. (laughs) That was Paul's life. And sometimes when he went somewhere, there was both a riot and a revival. He was a lightning rod, obviously. Uh, Many times, many people got saved, but there was also many times where there were riots. He says this man's a real pest or a troublemaker. He's a pestilence or a plague is the language. Uh, We found this fellow, this uh, Paul, who stirs up dissension. Weist translates this. He's an instigator of insurrections. This is the worst of the charges because Rome would put up with a lot. But if you mess with the Pax Romana in Latin, the, the Roman peace, that's when they got mad at you. And that's oftentimes when you would end up on a cross if you were stirring insurrection and uh, the like. He says he does this among all the Jews, end of verse 5, throughout the world. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. You see how he's trying to paint Paul? It's the only area, by the way, in the Bible that I know of where Christianity is called the sect of the Nazarenes. Jesus was from Nazareth. And remember they said of Nazareth, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So he's a ringleader. Was Paul a ringleader? Yeah. I mean, he was obviously a major Christian leader. Verse 6, and he even tried to desecrate the temple, which was a false charge. And then we arrested him, and we wanted to judge him according to our own law. But Lysias, the commander, came along with much violence and took him out of our hands. It was awful, Felix. But this is a bit of a twisting of the facts. Because when Lysias, the commander, came down with the Roman army, the Jewish mob was trying to kill Paul. And the only reason he survived was because the army came in and saved him from their violence. But it's always interesting how people twist the story to make themselves look good. And lawyers are not very good at that, I know. But anyway, sorry if you're a lawyer. Anyway. And so he says, by examining him, verse 8, yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. 
And the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. So the lawyer says, and once you question him, you'll agree with me, Mr. Governor. I'm sure of that. And the Jews who were there of the council said, yeah, yeah, what he said, yeah, this guy's awful. And they joined and they maligned Paul and accused him before the governor. Now Paul's life is at stake, but Paul already knows he's gotten a promise from God that his life is in whose hands? In the hands of Jesus. And so when the governor had nodded for him to speak, that is Paul, Paul responded. He said, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now Paul does not say he was a good judge. (laughs) He doesn't flatter him. He just says, I know you've been in this position for a while, and I cheerfully defend myself. Since you can take note, this is consider this like a trial now before a judge of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple, he's answering each of the charges now, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way, that's an early name of Christianity, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers. I don't serve a different God. Take note of that, Bible student. I serve the God of our fathers. Jesus Christ is the Messiah pointed to in the Old Testament. It's not a different God. Paul might say, I'm a completed Jew. This is what the Old Testament was pointing to, and I believe in the God of our fathers. But the Bible says in the New Testament, if you don't have the Son, 1 John 2.23, you don't have the Father. That is the testimony of the Bible. You cannot come to God the Father without the intervention of the Son, Jesus Christ, and his death and resurrection. And that's what Paul says. I serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law, and that is written in the prophets. Paul, in court, says, I believe the Bible. You know how popular that is when secular people are trying to assess things. I believe the Bible. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. Having hope in God, which these men's men cherish, or at least say they do, themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. I want to stop here for a second. There will certainly be a resurrection, folks, of both the righteous and the wicked. Jesus said that the Son of God is going to cause the resurrection, and some will rise to a resurrection of life, And some will rise to a resurrection of condemnation. And on that day, sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, they're going to stand before Jesus Christ. The judge of the living and the dead is Jesus. And when people are judged, whether you're in the sheep category on his right hand or the goats on his left, Jesus Christ will determine where you're going. You will either hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and you will see those wound marks in his hands and feet and side, or you will hear, depart from me, you who work iniquity. I don't know you. Jesus is the judge. He's not just an addition to our portfolio. He's not just an alternate lifestyle for Americans. His sacrifice on the cross and resurrection from the dead, if you receive it, will give you life. If you reject it, he will reject you. That's it. 
There's great hope of a resurrection, Paul says, but there's going to be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, one to life and one to eternal destruction. In view of this, this being so, 16, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. They had come to bring that offering for the poor saints, remember, in Jerusalem, in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were certain Jews from Asia, that's Asia Minor, who ought to have been present before you to make accusation if they should have anything against me. In Roman law, you got to face your accusers. Where were they? They may be the 40 who have taken a vow not to eat or drink until Paul is dead. They're probably hiding in a bush holding their tummy somewhere. If you would like to listen to this message, or if you would like more information about the ministry of Living Truth, please visit our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org. Throughout the book of Acts, we see the Apostle Paul on a mission, a race that God had called him to run. And Jesus was Paul's powerful protector, but it didn't mean that Paul didn't have opposition. And we can see that throughout the book of Acts. And we can see that once again as these men in Acts chapter 23 make an oath. And they make a solemn oath that they're not going to taste anything until they have killed Paul. And of course, God, you know, as the story unfolds, we see that God uses these circumstances and gets word back and eventually Paul gets protected by the, the Roman soldiers. And God has ways, you know, God can use the natural realm since he's involved in his creation to bring protection to his people so that they can finish uh, the race that he set before them. And that's indeed what Paul did what God did for Paul, I should say, in Acts chapter 23 and into chapter 24. Um, the Apostle Paul, you know, he had a passion to finish this race well. And uh, we can see the faithfulness of God as he guides him every step of the way. And I want to make an application to your life and my life right now. And it's this, as we are, as we are walking out the will of God in our life, as we are walking in the good works which God prepared for beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10, what we'll find is a, a faithful God. Now, we're, we see in many stories in Scripture that th that doesn't mean that He removes all danger or all tribulation from our lives. In fact, Jesus said, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good courage. I've overcome the world. And so Paul went through his crisis. He went through his trials. The, these people were plotting his death. And yet God supernaturally protected him, supernaturally, but naturally as well, using, you know, a military. Because God can work in every situation, and he can work out his will in your life. So maybe, you know, things are tight right now for you. Maybe things are difficult. Maybe you find yourself under a lot of pressure, whether it's family pressure or pressure that's coming from persecution or, you know, something that you're going through personally, and you're wondering, you know, where is God? Well, God hasn't moved, and he will be faithful to see you through to the very end. In 2 Timothy 4, when, you know, Paul said uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the last chapter he writes, you know, everybody deserted me at my first trial. But he said, the Lord stood by my side, 
And that's what we can know, that even when every human deserts us, God is faithful. 